0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Kyle Riesmendel, author of the book Neighborhood of Fear, The Suburban Crisis in American Culture, 1975 to 2001. Kyle, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here.
0: And we're glad to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
1: Sure. So uh, my name is Kyle Reese Mandel. I work as a senior university lecturer in the federated department of history at NJIT in Rutgers, Newark, um, in Newark, New Jersey. I'm also a proud New Jerseyan, So I grew up not too far from here. Um, And the genesis of my book really comes from growing up in the North Jersey suburbs of the seventies, eighties, and nineties. So it's, it's kind of a fascinating journey for me to be back working close to where I grew up and also um, in a place that's so close to my research.
0: Hmm. Um, what was it that led you to focus specifically on this uh, suburban crisis that you described? What was it that, that drew you to it? And, and why is it a, a story that is so worth telling?
1: So what drew me to it, in that experience growing up, so I'm, you know, I'm a white man, I was raised by college-educated parents, I grew up in the suburbs. Uh, most of my neighbors were of a similar demographic and uh, trajectory, and what I saw so much of was people who were afraid, people who were scared, people who were anxious despite the fact that they had all of this privilege, all of these advantages, um, some of it earned, some of it inherited, but it was a world of relative ease, right? Compared to lots of other places in the globe and lots of places in the United States in that period. And when I went to graduate school and I was sort of thinking about what I wanted to do with my life and what I wanted to research and you start to get asked these questions like, what's your dissertation about or what do you want to study? I kept coming back to, what was that all about? Like what was driving that anxiety or that fear? And then as it sort of morphed into a dissertation and a book, the question really became, what were the consequences of those fears? Why did it matter that privileged, largely white people were afraid of things? Right? What were they afraid of? Why were they afraid of it? And what consequence did it have for the broader culture and for them? That really drove the purpose of the book. Um, And I think it's important for a couple of reasons. So one, it's understudied, this era of suburban history. So there's been, as you may know, the new suburban history movement, which kind of culminated in the early 2000s, a bunch of books by like Kevin Cruz and Matt Lasseter and David Freund um, and others who were trying to rewrite suburban history to be more inclusive, to think about questions about race and class and gender and sexuality that hadn't really been thought about. Um, and so I sort of built from them to say, what hasn't been thought about in this later period, right? So most of them are writing about immediate post-war sort of 45 to the early 80s. And I realized no one's writing about or, or, or has written about this later periods, 75 and up through 9-11. <clears throat> so I think one is thinking about how important the suburbs are to American culture, American politics. We need to understand them. And then two, if you understand the suburbs in that period, you understand the rightward turn in American culture. You understand the rise of Reagan. I think you understand to some degree the 21st century politics of Donald Trump. So I think it's really important to you know, think about how did this happen on the ground? What um, were the cultural manifestations of this rightward turn and how did it facilitate the rise of figures like Reagan and Trump, but also how did they facilitate the power of people who were already powerful?
0: I was thinking as you as I was reading the book that you do uh, have this very fascinating uh, interplay between this notion of anxiety and the re- reaction, which is to seek some sort of greater empowerment. And, and as you make it clear in your book, it is very much a question of, of, of individual and local empowerment, that people were really seeking to tried to you know find solutions in part because they felt that you know the 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 ability of of their of, of larger governing bodies uh, larger organizations to to solve these problems were, was not there if anything they sometimes saw those organizations as the source of the problems and I thought that came across very well in uh, your sure. your uh, chapter about uh, nimbyism and, mm-hmm. and and your focus in that chapter upon the through Mile Isle island incident in 1979.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you picked up on that because so part of the argument of the book and thinking about, you know, so often what you'll have people say is, so yeah, so why were they scared? So number one, it, it, figuring out why were these threats visible? Why were they seen as dangerous, right? When in an earlier era, they were not. And then two, why were they able to react in these ways? Why did suburbanites do these particular things in these ways? And then what does it tell us? So, and so there's a couple of through lines that come together in that chapter. One is the emergence of the environmental movement itself we have by the mid 1970s, a pretty successful environmental movement. People who are saying, you know, we passed all of these laws, clean water, clean air, created the EPA, um, endangered Species Act, right? So there's sort of an established idea that the environment needs protecting and is actually in danger from people and development. And then you have the second thing, which is the rise of sort of the new right or the new conservatism, you know, eventually embodied by Ronald Reagan, which is the idea that government, right, is not the solution to your problem, it is the problem and that, you know, to think about how to solve issues in American culture, right, to sort of respond to the malaise of the Jimmy Carter era, we need to empower businesses and we need to empower individuals and families. And so when those these two things come together in the mid-70s, they come together at just as people are ready to see environmental danger, they have environmental danger where it didn't exist before, right? So Three Mile Island or um, Love Canal, these places where suburbanites expected, right, clean, safe, healthy living, but actually got an endangered landscape that they were ready to see as endangered. And they're being told government is not going to help you. You should do it yourself.
0: And the question is, how do they go about that? And, and, and the, what comes across in, when you're describing that is a theme that seems to recur throughout your book, which is sort of a, a, an effort to, to, to reinforce the bubble, to, to basically you know, push out those threats, even if they didn't identify them at first. I mean, it's hard to miss that you're you know growing, you know, that you're living next to a nuclear reactor, but it doesn't, it's not until that that you know, threat becomes real. And I like what you do as well in terms of how you tie it to uh, popular culture, how you point out the the uh, the, the parallel between the release of the moving China syndrome just in uh, in theaters just a few days before through my island. And how you have this culture, which oftentimes uh, echoes or, or, or resonates or, or, or shapes how we think about these fears and then how people in these communities respond to them.
1: Yes, exactly. And I think this is another thing about studying sort of modern or contemporary American culture writ large, but also particularly the suburbs is I I think you're doing a disservice if you ignore culture and media, right? If you're not thinking about the frameworks that are being provided by things people are consuming every single day, right? The daily newspaper, Time Magazine, the nightly news, what's on the big screen, what's on television at night. um, And to some degree, subcultures of like, especially for teenagers and kids, as we'll talk about later um, around, you know, comic books or Dungeons and Dragons and these things that these cultural texts organize knowledge, they organize the world, they provide a way of seeing things. And so, you know, up until 1977, nuclear power was something like 60 60 to 70% of people supported nuclear power, right? We're in the middle of an uh, oil crisis, we want cheap energy, we're told it's safe and efficient, right? It'll eventually be uh, power too cheap to meter. And then after the China syndrome comes out, you're like, hmm, interesting. Here's a way of seeing the nuclear power plant. I think, um, I can't remember if it's Newsweek or US News says, the nuclear plant is the boogeyman in a doomsday thriller. And two weeks later, an actual plant nearly melts down in almost the exact same fashion as the movie. And so people have this, you know, kind of jarring moment, but they're able to understand it now as threatening instead of as an energy savior or a safe to have in their backyard.
0: And yet what the reaction to something like that, as you point out, is not to turn against nuclear power uh, writ large, although you, you do describe that, that you've, already, you've already mentioned that that shift in public opinion, but it's more specifically to push it out of their immediate environment. I mean, the, the essence of NIMBYism is, is that they're not necessarily going to say, let's shut down all the nuclear power plants. They're simply saying, let's I don't want nuclear power in my neighborhood. I, I, I don't want anywhere where it could, where it could harm my family.
1: Yes, exactly. And and this is this is hard, or sorry, this is part and parcel of sort of the ethic of privatism, right? Is that I'm here to protect my backyard, my family, and to some degree, maybe even my neighborhood, from emergent threats, right? That is my sort of primary job. Whether the government will do it or not, I'm here to do it. I don't actually care per se about an ideological commitment to no nukes, right? Which was fairly popular in the nineteen eighties. I don't necessarily care about police reform. I just care that the police have failed me in protecting my children. And so this kind of provincial or local attitude pervades their response to these threats because, and part of the important thing about the book is the argument is these threats are now local, right? Rather than seeming exterior or as coming from the outside, such as racial integration or the force of the state to tax you more, um, these threats are appearing almost um, uh, uh, randomly within your environment, right? So you're like, whoa, uh, there, there are kidnappers here. There's a nuclear power plant here. They want to build. Uh, a trash incinerator in my neighborhood. I can react to that and respond to it in this way that's really about me, um, rather than about the sort of ideological entanglements of environmentalism or something else.
0: I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon through my island and how it serves to embody the spirit of, of NIMBYism, because you would think on the surface that that NIMBYism would not have a lot of traction if you're talking about this, you know, this industry. You're talking about this 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 existing. Uh, infrastructure this this presence that is you know nationwide globally and, and yet as you described nimbyism has extraordinary success during this period in terms of defining these local landscapes in, in ways that preserve uh you know the suburban ideals as, as, as the as the residents have it at, oftentimes as you explain at the expense of others
1: yeah so it, it turns on the core concept of the book which is productive victimization so the the essential idea is that One, people have to experience something as real, right? That there is a lived experience of danger or fear or threat that exists that someone can imagine themselves being part of, right? So the China syndrome and then Three Mile Island allow people to think about a nuclear power plant not as something friendly, safe, or something to ignore, but as an actual real hazard to life and limb. And so that real threat is established and then it gets sort of reproduced in culture, right? It gets seen in all these other ways, whether it's the failure of government to respond or whether it's... Um, a television show or, or a news broadcast that reinforces this idea, but it then says, okay, this is productive for me because now I have a say in my local land use, right? In this way that I maybe wouldn't have had before, or I only had in a sort of limited way in an earlier era. And so it allows you to say not my backyard becomes a catchall for environmental threats writ large, right? So environmental in quotes. So it's not just that that thing might poison my water, which was very real love canal. But that building a halfway house or a needle exchange or um, affordable housing is now an environmental threat to my family, right? It's sort of environmental as cultural.
0: And then you have the. the oh, sorry, the, uh, I was to say, you, and then you have the fascinating consequence of that, which is that you know, in effect, these events tend to crystallize the thinking of what these threats uh, might, uh, what form they might take. And then you describe uh, in the aftermath of Through Mile Island the, the fate, in particular, of Shoreham which is this fascinating episode that I, I wasn't as familiar with uh, compared to Through My Island, where mm-hmm. you have this you know, battle against uh, a, a very, you know, uh, powerful company, very expensive company that's invested a lot in, in, in establishing a nuclear power plant that a few years ago people were, you know, happy to see going up, but now all, are, are determined never to see go into operation and they succeed.
1: Yeah. And, and, and the reason they I spotlight them in the book is one, that it is both is about nuclear power But two, that they really show this commitment to NIMBYism, right? That they successfully oppose this plan. They do so in any number of ways, right? They use their privilege as constituents, right? They're seen as really important voters um, to both local politicians like the county executive, but also to state politicians like Mario Cuomo. So they want to appease voters like this. They don't want to make them mad Um, because when they make them mad, as I show in the book, any number of politicians who are for sure get voted out of office, right? Across party lines, so Democrats and Republicans. So they're really important as constituents and they flex this muscle at the ballot box. They also say, we're, like, we're your most important consumers. If you want to continue to operate on Long Island, you continue to want to you know, get our money, you're going to have to listen to us, right? And they're able to do so because, you know, as I point out, the sort of unintended and sometimes intended effect is people elsewhere who are not as powerful, largely um, communities of color, particularly um, black Americans and Latinx Americans are not able to do this, right? So they end up with these things in their backyard. So they're able to push out Shoreham and to prove that this works, right? It's kind of a proof of concept for many of these people. But then they go immediately home. They don't join marches. They're not spending money on um, anti-nuclear causes, right? They're just happy that it's not there.
0: So in effect, the, the, the battle in their mind is over rather than just simply shifted to a different front.
1: Exactly. And, and it provides this way of thinking about you know, these politics, right? That how can you argue with a homeowner who says, I don't want to endanger my children. How do you argue with the homeowner who says we don't want to contaminate our water it's very easy to argue with somebody who has an ideological commitment that nuclear power is in and of itself bad right and they understand this politics intuitively um and some of them are sophisticated enough to sort of think that way and others really are simply scared right three mile island is a very real thing to them
0: it's also an example where you can if somebody says nuclear power is bad you can you know, argue the case you can find constituent for it but if somebody simply says it's a threat in my neighborhood. I don't want it out. I mean, how do you, you can't really argue the, the merits of nuclear power because that's never going to work. All you can do in the end is simply move it away or, or never start it.
1: Yeah. And, and, and the choice becomes, do we, you know, we being the power company, we being the state who's heavily invested in this idea, simply impose our will and leave and take the consequences of that? Or do we recede and find another way, right? Which is to shut down the plant, right? Literally billions of dollars right down the toilet. <laughs> um, it's the first <laughs> plant ever to be built and not open, right? To not, you know, they go through the entire process of building it, licensing it, and never produces a single watt of energy.
0: One of the things I thought was interesting, and you've already uh, mentioned it, which was the, the the discrepancy that existed between, you know, on one hand, there was this growing uh, awareness of the environment. There were growing measures on, on a national level to uh, deal with it, such as the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts. And, and yet at the same time, how, even with these in place, you do have that growing anxiety. And Here, I'm thinking in particular of Love Canal because mm-hmm. here you're, you're talking about, unlike say, through my island, which was an accident that took place uh, in you know 1979. Love Canal was more of this you know crisis that was there before the period you're your discovering started, uh, the the started. Uh, you know, it started before the period that you're covering but it was one that came into view in the mid 1970s and, and underscored the sense that, you know, this place you move into that seems so bucolic and safe actually is filled with all these, 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 uh, you know, poisons and, 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 and toxins that, you know, make it more hazardous than safe. you were to be living in the inner city.
1: Yes, exactly. And, and so this is again, part of like the, the larger argument of the book is that the mid 1970s, I sort of used 1975 in the title, but the mid 1970s marked the shift in suburban history, right? That, so what we might think of as this uninterrupted period of peace, or at least seeming peace, right? So many scholars have shown how there were any number of environmental or domestic or criminal dangers that were occurring in that period, but they're not visible in culture. They're not sort of the center of the suburban experience, become the center of the suburban experience in this later period. So due to development, um, particularly industrial development that is was done poorly, right? That endangered the environment like at Love Canal. And so you end up with this period of time where Urbanites are confronted with fears, you know, as I say in the book, environmental, moral, and criminal, and that the they all have this kernel of materiality. They all have this kernel of realness, right? That there are there do seem to be real consequences for families from these threats. And so, Love Canal becomes the touchpoint where, you know, literally they have to close the town down. Everyone has to move out because so many kids, so many people have genetic defects, cancers, um, strange diseases and disorders no one's ever seen before. Uh, this provides a way to say, well, I'm not going to live in another love canal. I'm not going to allow this thing to happen. Um, and, and so from that moment, right, they begin to view their environment much more skeptically and to see danger in many cases where it does not exist.
0: And it's not just a danger from, say, an environmental disaster. It's a, a danger that becomes localized to the point where it's literally in the home. And I'm thinking here about your description of chemical sensitivity. Which is this? Which really emerges during this period, where you start to see people identifying it, and it's not something that's caused by uh, a, 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 a truck overturning and, and spewing out pesticides, or uh, you know, or, or, or an explosion of a Union Carbide plant, but it's happening because mm-hmm. of the everyday chemicals that people are buying in, in uh, sh- supermarkets and, and, and using in their neighborhoods w- without any real concern.
1: Yes, and this is, in some ways, this is the most difficult thing to write about in the book was the idea of everyday chemical or environmental danger being both sort of imaginary or produced at the level of the individual or family and also being real, right? Experienced as a real material thing in a body, right? That people are sick. They do feel these things. And yet, as you point out, right, there's no single cause you can point to. This moment of burying waste, of a or, or as I talk about in the Don DeLillo's White Noise, of like this moment in the book where there's this, gas that's released and we can point to this as a real you know as a possible explanation for our endangerment it's people in their own homes saying it's my refrigerator it's the rubber that my shoes are made out of it's this you know environmental illness or multiple chemical sensitivity that modern life itself is made up of these chemicals and i cannot escape it right no matter what i do there's no safe place to live
0: i was thinking about like for example uh the the allar scare involving apples How you know you you don't think of a fruit being you know dangerous when you buy it from the store, but then it turns out that there's this chemical on that's getting people sick. And therefore it's entered, you know, the threat is inside the house and, and it's, <laughs> right, making right. Your, <laughs> it's making your family sick.
1: Yeah. And and, and I, I think, you know, the reason it's, the reason it's included is in part because it was so prevalent um, as a sort of suburban or middle-class disorder, particularly among women. Um, but it also, I think paves the way towards our sort of consumerist view of health and wellness. Um, so, uh, historian uh, Natalia petrozello is working on uh, doing some really fascinating work about wellness culture and where it comes from. And I think a lot of it comes from this idea that I can myself diagnose, treat, and understand my body better than the medical establishment. Um, and I can do it in response to these chemical triggers or these environmental illnesses. And I think paves the way to all kinds of things like the anti-vax movement um, and other kinds of choices about wellness culture and managing your own body. And yet, right, I still think there is, like, this materiality or this realness to their pain, to their suffering, Uh, and there, of course, as I point out in the book, you know, historical indifference to women's pain, particularly black women's pain in the medical community, right? So there are all these ways in which there there are legitimate reasons to be scared, legitimate reasons to not trust authority, be it the state or the doctors or the police. And yet so much of it feels produced or manufactured, right that it's actually not um, any diagnosable thing that can be treated or understood.
0: And there's also a, a sense in your book of how it's it's about basically trying to push back and, and and reclaim what seems to have been lost. So if the body is being poisoned, therefore we must claim we, we must you know try to find ways to you know uh, purify, it, remove the the threat and reclaim that and then you go on to say well then and if and if my my uh, house is unsafe if my neighborhood is unsafe we must go back and reclaim that and i'm, I'm thinking here about your your, your, your this is a thing that really comes out well in your next chapter where you're talking about uh the the the, the carceral uh suburb you know, the idea of how you know that, that these, these threats that that we went to the suburbs to get away from are now somehow making their way in and so therefore we now have to see uh, you know not just secure our bodies from chemicals we have to secure our space from this external threat and 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 you know make our 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 our, our homes into fortresses
1: yes and, and this is i think the irony of productive victimization in many ways is that it does allow for you know these legitimate threats and experience them as real and and local allow suburbanites to do lots of things right control space control people cement their sort of status as the kind of like default american right this white homeowner who is upwardly mobile, et cetera, but they do suffer within this right very, in very real ways, and they are actually um, limited in many, in many ways. So as you raise this idea of the carceral suburb is in response to crime, and so there's uh, this emergence of the kidnapping threat, uh, which I tell through the story of Adam Walsh and sort of the educational movements that come from that, as well as this emerging notion of home invasion and the bucolic burglary wave, which alerts people to the idea that, oh, even though I moved from the city, People are still trying to get into my house you know. that's reproduced through all kinds of things like ADT commercials, et cetera. But then ultimately, the reaction is to both more intensely police space as a private individual or as part of neighborhood watch or to buy a home security system or to eventually erect walls and gates in a gated community and employ your own security system or your own security personnel. But you are now living in a jail of your own design, right? So, So this is what I mean by the carceral suburb. You're both jailer and jailed, right? You're constantly aware of the threat you're constantly aware that you're in danger, but you're also, you know, mightily trying to exert control over the space in response to that threat.
0: And it's a space that, as you pointed out, you're trying to control. You're not relying upon these local authorities who, you know, you, you do have a police force. You 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 do have, uh, you know, a a, a a legal system that, you know, in so many ways, you know, caters to this constituency. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and yet it's still not enough. We, we have to spend additional money to put up bars, to to. Uh, you know, to to uh, you know, have you know, either hire private patrols or even you know undergo some training and, and you know drive around the neighborhood a few hours each week ourselves.
1: Yes, exactly. And the, and this is again sort of the when we talk about the rightward turn in American culture, how it's both being fueled by these homeowners, but they're also being facilitated by this broader view that government has failed, right? That the state does not work, and if it does work, it certainly does not work for you, white suburban homeowner. Um, so I, I talk about in that chapter, and I think it's it, it is some degree woven through the book, but I explicitly explain in that chapter, which is this foil facilitator relationship between people and the government that on the one hand, they need as foil to say the government fails, right? And so in this case, the police can't protect our children from kidnappers. They can't protect us from burglars. They don't come when they're called, right? I'm reliant on myself, whether it's gun ownership or alarm system or private security, but I also need them, right? Ultimately (laughs) to be successful, to be safe, I need them to respond to my needs immediately, which they do, as you rightly point out, right? So You know, the book is not necessarily focused on the disparities between urban and suburban or sort of um, white and people of color, but the differing plights of people who live in cities and who are black and Latinx, right, shows you that there is this differing relationship to the state, even as white people, even as suburbanites are saying, the state has failed me, right? It's victimized me in some way.
0: And that's why I thought it was so fascinating was this idea that the people who you could argue the state was least failing were were, were the ones who who were doing, who were perceived that it was most failing them and we're, we're doing the most uh and, and expending the most to compensate for that perception
1: yes exactly so I, I sort of draw this parallel um very briefly but between you know so the response to the kidnapping epidemic in quotes of the early 1980s right is to empower parents is to give them these tools as to provide all these educational things have schools and parents and police work together in all these ways and when there is an actual kidnapping epidemic in atlanta the atlanta child murders right the residents of atlanta all black are treated as criminals. They're treated as suspects. They're treated as outsiders to their own community. Right. Um, they are, they are policed actually more forcefully because of it rather than being empowered to find their children. So you see these like, you know, disparate, uh, parallels uh, across all of these issues.
0: And I was thinking about how that also plays out in terms of the issue of, uh, out of control teenagers that you described. Which is which is a distinct one from from this this question of the choir wave because here you're you're talking not just about this notion of uh, these external actors who are coming in and posing a threat, but you're talking about people within the community who who are uh, you know who are you know being corrupted, shall we say, or by, by culture, <laughs> by the music, or who and and how and how they you know populate the space. You, you, you they're not you can't expel them from the community because they're members of the community. But they, but they, and their presence in the space, in, in the shopping malls, in the community centers, in the schools, is is seen as as, as great of a threat.
1: Yeah, and, and 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 I think you know, as many scholars have pointed out, you know, very recently, or have done very good work on this, you know, the sort of anxiety about the family and the decline. You know, as I as I point out in the in, in the section on suburban hardcore, right, that Penelope Spears calls her documentary "The Decline of Western Civilization," um, and it's sort of tongue in cheek at some level, but it also captures the anxiety at that moment about the American family. Uh, and almost implicitly about the white suburban American family. So what's wrong with our children? Um, And so that anxiety plays out across both sort of popular culture consumption around the occult and Satanism, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and heavy metal, and it plays out around sort of space, right, about where teens are, who they're associating with, um, and how we think about them, how we regulate them. So their regulation in spaces like the mall and arcade is, is both endangered, right, like being there is dangerous to them, but they're also the ones we're worried about, right? We're also worried about them committing crime, drinking, smoking, fighting, shoplifting, et cetera. And so we get this extension of the sort of security ethic around you know, kidnapping or burglary gets applied to public spaces, well, including the, especially the mall, um, as well as the rec center and the arcade, where there is a crackdown essentially on <laughs> the behavior and access of teenagers, right, in those spaces.
0: It's, it's a perfectly natural, uh, uh, under, uh, it's a perfectly understandable uh, uh, process if you think about it progressively. If, you, if you've secured your body and you secured your home, the next thing to do is to secure the community space because you still have to interact there. And especially when you have these kids who aren't, as you described, you know, they they aren't staying at home. They're going out. They're they're they have to go to school. They uh, they they want to go play with their friends. And then there are all these threats out there. The older kids, the the kids <laughs> who listen to punk rock, the kids who you know, heaven forbid, you know, you know, although we'll, we'll get to the, the cultural influence just a minute, but, you know, play Dungeons and Dragons and, 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 and who, you know, because of that, they, they tend to be the bad kids. It's, it's not your kid that's bad, but these bad kids out there who are, mm-hmm. who are, who are a threat to your, your family when they, the moment they leave the safe space of the home.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's again, sort of the irony, right, of, of these generation of parents moving to the suburbs to be safe, right? That, well, we can rely on our drinking water and we can rely on, um, you know, not having a noxious air. We can rely on our house won't be broken into or our children won't be kidnapped. And we certainly can rely on the idea that our kids can ride their bikes freely around the neighborhood, right? That they are not, we're not worried about what they're going to do or who they're going to encounter. And then suddenly we are, right? Like, <laughs> and this is, I think, you know, one of the hardest things about writing the book or, or the way to construct the book is how to tell stories that are all happening at the same time, right? So they're in different chapters and they're around themes and particular responses. Or around particular threats and particular responses, but each chapter covers the same period of time, right? So at the same time as Love Canal and Three Mile Island, is also the same time as Adam, the same time as Bucolic Burglary Wave, the same time as the Satanic Panic, and the same time as mall, mall rats emerge, right? And so they're all part of the same world of fear and the same world of response. So teens really allow businesses, towns, and parents all to kind of work together to really regulate space space more effectively. Um, for their ends, which is to reconsolidate children into the home because we're worried about them. And what's safer than the house, right? What's safer than the moral environment of consumption of the house where you can play Sega or Nintendo versus going to the arcade, right?
0: And, and yet what's, what's fascinating is that what you described in your last two chapters, which you're talking about you know, because you're, you're talking about a, a more localized uh, problem it's also one that, as you explained, and this comes across especially well in your chapter on culture, but you also talk about it in your chapter about the mall rats, how a lot of that culture is, is reacting directly to it. You have on, uh, in, in, in uh, uh, that one chapter, uh, I think it's chapter four, you have the uh, picture of, uh, from the cover of out of vogue, uh, which is oh, by, yeah. the, you know, by the, by the, by, a punk band middle class. And it's, it's almost like they're, they're deliberately pointing their critique not at, at 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 western culture or american culture they're pointing specifically at suburban middle class culture it's, it's like it, a line is being drawn and, and and a war is being declared and, <laughs> and, and how could a, how could you know suburban parents not you know, treat it as you know that that the that the, the, the peace they're trying to achieve is, is now under attack
1: yeah it becomes a cultural so hardcore punk becomes this cultural phenomenon that is suburban right It is rooted in the suburbs for so many of those bands and so much of the culture, right? So of course you have Washington DC or San Francisco. But if you look at, you know, hardcore LA, it is about the suburbs. And if I could be so bold, they fucking hate it there. (laughs) And they articulate this in every possible way, right? The way they look, the zines that they produce, how they talk about themselves and their parents. Um, and to some degree this is self hatred as well, right? Mm -hmm. Uh and in the in the music that they play. And so I try to I try to you know, construct this world in a way that you understand that it's about how they think about their space and who they are in that space. And that it's very much like these other teens who feel both danger, endangered and dangerous or, or surveilled in this way or not surveilled um, who are hailed in this way. But like, you know, it's, it's impossible to cover all of hardcore in the amount of time that I talk about it. <laughs> um, and there are other books about this, you know, uh, 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 um, uh, Dora McLeod's book, uh, kids at the black hole and others. Right. Uh, but I think there is probably something more to be done about hardcore. But I try to use it to understand. There is there is real rebellion there, right? Mm-hmm. There is real threat, as you point out, to these kids. Who don't like their parents. They are the children of divorce. They don't like the police. They don't like their school, and they're and they are raising their middle finger right in the suburbs. Right? They're not just leaving to go to the city to escape. They're playing and performing and and confronting, their own parents, their own teachers, their own uh, police forces, and so, it becomes like this this symbol of. You know, teenage rebellion that gets quashed, right? Essentially, <laughs> it gets regulated out of existence.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about how, it, as I was reading, the, the the parallels, you know, with with you know the the fear of the like the nineteen forties nineteen fifties of communist subversion, the idea that they will somehow, mm-hmm. uh, you know, infiltrate the community, you know, brainwash people to 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 <laughs> buy into their ideology, and, and and that was there. I mean, when when you go to a mall and you see kids with uh uh, with mohawks or or wearing leather the the sense that you know they had succeeded in turning them and you know your kid will be next if if you don't somehow address this threat
1: yeah it's not just on tv or on the movie screen you're seeing these kids in your neighborhood you've seen a mall rat when you've gone to the mall right Mm -hmm. you've seen a kid addicted to pac-man you've seen a mohawk kid you've seen someone in leather even if it's just one kid right it's a sign of how the culture has shifted beyond your control as a parent or as a local, um, the sort of politician or business owner that you're trying to respond to. So, you know, I talk about the different the changes in mall security and mall rules. The, you know, quote unquote professionalization. You know, they're still mall cops, right? But um, they are, you know, employed and trained. They have more technology at their disposal, uh, and, and you see the ways in which there is a real institutional response to these threats. That like this is out of control, and they need to be controlled as a symbol of, you know, kind of I think as you, you're quite rightly referring to a nostalgic ideal of the suburb, right? That we have to get back to, you know, Wally and the Beeve,? right? We, we don't need to get back to sort of Henry Rollins.
0: <laughs> and yet, one of the things you did in that, in that examination that I really liked was you pointed out the, the difference between that and, say, dealing with the external threat to the home. Because while these people are perceived as a threat, they're also consumers. I mean the the fact is that these these uh, these mall rats are going to the mall. They're spending money, and so you mm-hmm. have you describe how it, it's not just it'd be the easy thing to do would be to simply you know lock them out uh, to impose curfews. But yeah. at the same time, the people who control the space don't want to push them out to where they lose their money.
1: <laughs> yeah, they they have to be regulated, right? And this is really the key again, like. You you compare it to the massive you know incarceration of of young black uh, young black men and young Latinx men over the same period of time right for the exact same kinds of infractions, you know hardcore punks were known for walking up to cops and harassing them trying to beat them up, Um, mall rats were known for breaking all kinds of laws and rules, and they get a slap on the wrist right the regulations of the mall change but their lives don't change right in the same fundamental way that if you are caught law breaking. In the 80s and 90s in in urban places as a as a teenager right you're likely to go to jail right you're going to go to rikers if you're in new york city and so these disparate outcomes show you just how important those teens are as symbols right of the health of the nation but also as you know citizens and consumers in this moment of you know what liz cohen calls the consumer's republic that they need to be there and focus on spending right putting quarters in the machine and not fighting uh, buying clothes not shoplifting etc
0: and of course it's a lot easier to uh you push back against that threat by going after the music, by by going after rock and roll, by going after Dungeons and Dragons, by blaming Marilyn Manson for uh, Columbine, uh, as as sort of you know that, that you know. But for that threat, these would be good you know clean cut kids.
1: Yes, exactly. And and, and this is the sort of um, the, the the larger implication, especially in that last chapter of the Satanic Panic and the logic of the Satanic Panic. So when when Satan sort of subsides by the mid nineties there's still some real um, focus on cultural consumption as the locus of problems, right? As the locus of bad kids, dangerous kids, um, violent kids. Uh, And we still operate to some degree under that logic today. But so when school shootings happen, particularly Columbine, there's like, well, what were they playing? What were they listening to? What did they wear, right? Not these kind of more fundamental questions about mental health, family status, um, you know, structural things, right? Uh, and, And so part of the argument of that chapter really is, by focusing on consumption and culture, we ignore the structural concerns that are actually at the heart of teen suicide, teen pregnancy, teen violence, right? That we actually look away as a culture and as a government from all kinds of structural things we can actually do to deal with this, right? That like, you know, which we know work. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I point out quite rightly that just say no fails, right? It is not good at stemming the desire for drugs because when you treat it as a sort of cultural choice, right, a market choice and not a disease, you end up with lots of people doing drugs, right? So and it's just one you know, one instance. I talk a lot about the sort of teen suicide epidemic of the 80s and 90s and that what we're really worried about is ACDC or playing a Judas Priest record backward. What we're not worried about is why are teens depressed? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> what is at the heart of their feelings about themselves? Could it be that their parents are anxious about all the things around them? You know, it's, it's so it's questions like that that there's, where I try to put in the, con, in, in the context of the right word turn and culture and politics is, by focusing on culture and consumption, we ignore the actual structural concerns that would help everybody, right? So spending on mental health, spending on healthcare itself um, would help everybody, right? Not just suburban teens.
0: Hmm. Well, we've taken a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Uh, <laughs> yes. The, the what you're working on now question. So, so I'm, a, I'm a full-time lecturer, so uh, I don't get paid to research. So always what I'm working on now is kind of up to my, uh, <laughs> up to my free time at the moment. So I have two things I want to do. Um, the next book project is <clears throat> sort of tentatively about trying to examine the, the digital and material worlds together. So trying to break down the wall between how we analyze what people do online and what they do in their real lives. And this is not to say scholars have not done this, but I really do want to sort of cover the same period of time I cover in Neighborhood of Fear to say, what are the connections between your sort of virtual world, particularly in the pre-high um, speed internet era, um, and your material world? the ways in which you construct your identity, the ways in which you are addressed by consumer culture, and sort of thinking about, you know, so it it, it all stemmed from sort of um, early internet culture like uh, the bulletin board system or BBS, where people are finding a place to be anonymous or to construct an identity online that they then have to grapple with in the real world, right? So often around fan cultures or things like tape trading or, um, you know, very particular interests, let's say, (laughs) you know, like Usenet, et cetera, right? Um, so I'm trying to figure out like, what does that mean? How do we go from a sort of this bifurcation that then becomes merged and it becomes merged largely through a consumer culture or the commercialization of the internet. So it's, it's a lot of stuff right now (laughs) and I haven't had a lot of time to work on it, but, but, but I'm really fascinated by the ways in which people navigate the digital and material and analog world simultaneously, um, through media and through their consumption and use of media and how they sort of construct themselves within consumer culture. Well, like- the second thing is <laughs> sorry, I said two things. So the other thing was the the lost chapter of this book, which I still want to to write, which will hopefully be a journal article, will be um, about domestic terrorism. So domestic terrorism, sort of being defined in two ways: so the emergence of terrorism as a local threat in suburbs, um, that sort of prepares the way for the reaction to nine eleven, and domestic terrorism as terrorism within the household amongst family members, um, and this the glut. I would argue of media about that threat uh, and not that it's not real, but that you know, we have the emergence of lifetime television for women and that so many of those films are really focused on the secret threat from within the home. And I think that's actually also part of this age of anxiety um, that, that prepares us for the 21st century.
0: Well, they both sound like fantastic projects and I look forward to reading that journal article when it comes out and having you back uh, if you can, uh, when you uh, take the first project and turn it into a book. <laughs> yeah me
1: too <laughs> i'll see you in 2035
0: <laughs> well, kyle Rizmondel, i look forward to uh 15 to speaking to you about 15 years until then have a wonderful day
1: <laughs> you too be well